We'd like to first acknowledge that we are on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional gathering grounds for many diverse First Nations, Métis, and Inuit, whose footsteps have marked this land and whose presence continue to enrich our vibrant community. Hello and welcome back to Research Recasted, the knowledge mobilization podcast. I'm Dylan Cave and I'm here with Brittany Eklund. Today we have an extra special episode where we have not one but three guests in our very first ever student research edition. We'll be talking with presenters from last year's Student Research Day. First, Alicia Kanu-Lakani discusses her paper on Indigenous allyship in the Asian diaspora, touching on implicit bias, challenging perceptions, and cognitive imperialism. Next, we talk with Brady Bailey, whose award-winning research looks at sustainability, e-scooters, and the sharing economy. Lastly, we'll sit down with Mackenzie Thomas about her pioneering research into typographies and risk assessment of criminogenic needs of sexual offenders. Alicia Kanu-Lakani is in her second year of her Bachelor's of Child and Youth Care, and she's interested in how childhood trauma affects development and how those dealing with trauma can be supported. She's also passionate about supporting people and especially marginalized communities in their life space. Her research, Asian Diaspora and Indigenous Allyship, was written with the intention of becoming an accessible resource to open a dialogue on displacement and allyship within the larger Asian community. Thank you so much for joining us. We're super excited to hear about your research. Thank so you. can you walk us through the project? Um, so essentially I wrote this paper Asian diaspora and indigenous allyship, um, just because there hasn't been a lot of conversation um, or discourse around um, how marginalized populations who are still considered model minorities can help um, uphold the subjugation of the indigenous people of this land. And I just wanted to make something that would open up a dialogue within the Asian communities on Turtle Island about how we can be allies and better support the indigenous people of the land. Okay, so um, is there something in particular that uh, sparked your interest in this topic? Uh, yeah, so um, I have been working in a group home setting for four years. Um, so essentially working with um, the most marginalized children in the city. Um, so that frontline work gave me a lot of uh, firsthand experience on um, the impact that intergenerational trauma has had yeah. on these young people. And um, that the way that our systems that we live in are built on the subjugation of indigenous people. And um, so watching it firsthand um, just made me really realize that we need to have this discourse a little bit more. And my positioning as a part of the Asian diaspora um, in the West is a little bit different too, because I'm still a settler and an uninvited guest on this land, but um, settling also can't be conflated with violent colonialism because um, it doesn't account for like, reasons that people in the Asian diaspora had to settle here, yeah. which is also due to colonialism that we've faced. And I'm also the child of refugees. Um, so I also do understand that intergenerational trauma. So I wanted to open a discourse on how we can all get together and discuss 
how we can be better allies to the indigenous people in the land that we settle. Yeah. An important conversation for sure. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of curious if, um, because you're in your second year of child and youth care, is this something um, like intergenerational trauma, um, the negative effects of colonialism? Is this something that's being covered in the program or did this come about merely kind of through your work in the community? So both. Um, I'm Intergenerational trauma has been something that not only have I grappled with in my personal life, um, but something that has been very clear from the start of my um, working in this field that it is a huge issue. Um, However, it is also addressed very clearly and phenomenally in the child and youth care program. Um, I believe that the child and youth care program has like a really, really good lens on intersectionality and advocacy. Okay. So what kind of resources did you have available to you for this project? Um... JSTOR. <laughs> JSTOR. <laughs> Great. Yeah, I just did a ton of reading. Um, some amazing books um, by phenomenal Indigenous authors. And it's it's all about learning, right? And not making it the burden of the marginalized people to teach you, but to go out and seek that knowledge yourself. And that's something that we're learning with our podcast as well, you know. Um, we we want to do things in an ethical way. And, you know, we, we had to learn very quickly that it's like not other people's job to help us be better people and more ethical in our practice. Absolutely. Um, So we've had to put in quite a lot of work into trying to, you know, do what we can to try and make sure that, that we're doing stuff in an appropriate way. Yeah. And it's not easy. It's, it's often quite hard uh, not only to go out and read a ton and try and listen to whatever podcasts or Ted talks or whatever that indigenous people are offering us. Um, but to also unlearn the implicit biases and cognitions that we just have like so deeply ingrained in us is an incredibly difficult process. And it's uncomfortable. And I I think that that is something that, again, we've spoken about on the podcast, but I think on a personal level, like it is, you come from, especially a family who may have been settled here generations ago. And so your family is like, well, I don't understand. Mm Mm-hmm we're from here. And I'm like, "Eh, well, I don't know about (laughs) that. But um, yeah, one of the questions we do have is exactly about what you're saying about unlearning these colonial worldviews. So it's like, how do you find it? How do you challenge it? And are there implicit bias that are unique to the Asian diaspora in relations to Indigenous allyship? Hmm. That's an interesting question. Um, I will say that it would be absolutely false to say that I have unlearned everything. I think that is a lifelong journey Mm -hmm. and I hope to be the best ally as possible. Um, However, it has been it's it's uncomfortable. It's shameful at times. Um, And I think it's something we all have to just deal with, like just deal with how like not great it feels. Um, And uh it takes a lot of educating yourself and a lot of like catching yourself like in your thoughts and trying to really um, to catch yourself and then unpack it and debrief that thought and say, where did that come from? Um, you know what, what experience in my life triggered that? And because like we live in these systems that are built on the subjugation of BIPOC folk 
And we are like so socialized to live within those systems. And so it's like changing how you've been socialized. And em- embracing that un- uncomfortableness as well. Um, we, we talk about that on a few of our podcasts, uh, just like, you know, we should a- almost like it, it's like going to getting that feeling of even going to a different country. If we're talking about um, new settlers to Canada or people just migrating to Canada, um, having that uncomfortableness of even going somewhere where you don't speak the, uh, the same language and feeling just like so out of your comfort zone and embracing that because it's something that other people feel every single day of their lives trying to adapt to a new country that they've moved to. And I don't know, there's something that we talked about is there's something beautiful about the the uncomfortableness and embracing it. Absolutely. And I will say like embracing that feeling of uncomfort is not only a good thing, but it's our responsibility mm-hmm. as settlers on this land. It's um, It's something that... I believe that we don't really have a choice. We need to be mindful about, you know, where our thoughts and decisions are coming from and and to have an anti-oppressive lens on on the things that we do and how we are in the world. Absolutely. So I do want to talk a little bit more about your paper. Um, just kind of like the things that you explored as your main themes. And what did you like what are you coming away from this with that's a really good question because mm, like I've sec. read the paper but for those who may not have read it um if you could just dive in a little bit into um some of the specifics yeah um so I think one of the most important things that came out of this paper in my opinion um was just the idea of cognitive imperialism um which is <laughs> so which is essentially um it's a form of colonial violence that essentially is like my way of believing and knowing the world is superior to another um which is how early settlers justified their colonial violence um against indigenous people but it's also like a very consistent theme that you we hear this rhetoric all the time and like our whole our whole society is based on the rhetoric that like um, the Western way of being was superior. Um, and then I think it's also really, really important to understand that like indigenous people are land defenders and they um, traditionally would live with the earth with a reciprocal relationship. Um, so like take care of the land and the land takes care of you and place thought theories, which is essentially the idea that like um, the land is just as alive as we are. And I think that that's like an incredibly beautiful and probably more valid way of existing in the world. I was just going to say, like, um, you know, the the societal way of that we're taught to think is, you know, we're we're here to serve our our country or we're here to serve our community and things like that. And you know, for, for indigenous populations, I envy the the way of just, you know, existing is what we're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. We're supposed to exist and give back to the land and and protect it. Well, I think the more that we understand um, global systems, global weather systems, agriculture, things like that, we are coming to the realization 
hopefully as a larger society that you do have to live reciprocally. Like we will not make it if we do not start Mm -hmm. caring for that. Um, I do want to pull it back a little bit. So something that you talk about in your paper is actually the model minority trope. Mm -hmm. Can you um, explain that a little bit in the context of this project? Yeah. Okay. So the idea of the model minority is essentially that Asians are successful minorities, right? Um, It's kind of that view that we've all heard of, like, smart, good jobs, really good at math or whatever, right? Um, So essentially, there's two things that does that, um, or there's two things that this affects within the context of Indigenous people. Um, The one is that the myth of the model minority kind of started when Canada and the States had a pretty big push for immigration um, and specifically educated immigrants. Um, And there ended up being a lot of educated immigrants that came from all over the world, but particularly Asia. And, um, And the myth of the model minority kind of became a divisive tool by settlers and white folk to um, make the labor of indigenous and black folk null because the labor of Asian folk was considered superior. Um, So it it has always been a divisive strategy. Um, And uh, it's like very important to like unlearn that rhetoric, I believe. So how can discussions then about colonialism and allyship um, maybe be tailored specifically towards the Asian diaspora who have this kind of trope that has been used divisively? Um, I believe it's just like important to learn about the subjugation of indigenous people. I think a lot of people have like these rose colored glasses about you know, what really happened. So I think it's like very important to learn about like the 500 years of incredibly violent colonialism. And even before residential schools, like the violence that happened was ongoing and horrific. And it still is. Um, So I think next is to like, you know, have a conversation around how this wasn't just the past. This wasn't 100 years ago. They don't, nobody needs to just get over it. Like this is built into all our systems and we need to understand how systemic racism still affects indigenous people um, and and come at it from a place of just like caring and compassion for the people and community around you. Um, so I kind of wrote this paper with like kind of the idea in my head that like um, you just like be able to read this and then maybe have a conversation with your like Indian auntie about it who said something a little bit messed up at dinner the other night. Um, so just like opening that discourse. Yeah. Starting a conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, you still have a few years to go in university. Um, do you have plans to expand on this paper specifically? I would really love to <laughs> like child and youth care have, their um journals that i think it'd be interesting to submit um but i uh yeah i have no definitive plans but yeah i would love to publish this in a journal 
Do you do you believe that this vein of research is something that you will pursue throughout the rest of your academic career? I think, um, yeah, absolutely, because I I think I have a very interesting positioning in relation to this topic, right? As somebody who works with primarily Indigenous communities and is very passionate about that, but also as a part of the diaspora, um, I'm a part of the Indian diaspora from East Africa with refugee parents. So um, my positioning, I believe, is in relation to this topic, is quite unique and. Um, not only in an academic way would I like to continue with this, um, but I will say that like all my work within child and youth care and in the field has the anti-oppressive lens. So this kind of work, it's not only academic, but it's a way of like living and a way about going around the world and acting. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> um, those are all the questions that we had for you. Um, but at the end, we always want to open it up. So is there anything we might have missed um, in this conversation? Anything important about um, this topic or this paper that that you want to kind of leave the audience with? I will say that for a lot of people, when they start to approach allyship, it seems quite daunting. And there's no real equation. There's no there, There's no one good way to be an ally. And there's no... There's no way you have to do a lot of learning. So if anybody is trying to figure out how to become an ally, the first thing to remember is we don't get to call ourselves allies. The communities that we are trying to be allies to are the ones who decide if we get to be allies or if we are allies based on our actions. And the second thing is, is like a good place to start is just to start to really back indigenous communities, indigenous community organizers, activists, um, and land protectors. Um, and just remember that every sentient being should be treated with dignity and sacred reverence. Absolutely. I don't think that anyone could disagree <laughs> with that. Um, Alicia Kanu, thank you so much for joining us um, and taking the time. I know it's a crazy time in the semester, so it's been a sincere pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, best of luck going forward. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Brady Bailey is in his last semester of Bachelor of Commerce with an accounting major. Driven by passion for finding creative, innovative, and sustainable solutions, he is engaged and active student. He works as a research assistant in the decision science and participates in case competitions and student events in the School of Business Leadership Series. And last year, his research on e-scooters won the Administrative Sciences Association of Canada's Best Student Paper Award. Hi, Brady. Thanks hey, how are you guys? For coming in and being with us. We're very good. Thank you. So, um, congratulations on your paper. Um, can you just walk us through the project? Yeah, for sure. Thank you. Um, so, it actually started off as a part of a um, experimental learning class, a part of the uh, NGTS 497 with uh, Dr. Rohit Jindal, who is actually my research advisor, too. Okay. Um, so there's only about six of us in the class, which is pretty typical for new pilot projects. Um, and then at the end of the semester, we had to do this pretty much a case on some sort of sustainability topic. And uh, 
we kind of took a step back and we're like, hey, what's a hot topic right now? Um, something that's super trendy. Um, people are going to kind of like latch on to if they were to like also look at our presentation or read it. Um, and the Lime scooters and e-scooters were popping up everywhere around Edmonton. They sure uh, are. And it's springtime now. So they yeah, are we'll back, see them again, baby. right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I spent yeah. my fair share of time on an e-scooter the last couple summers for sure. Yeah. Definitely took a couple falls over the mm-hmm. last summer. We'll uh, not talk about that, but... Um, Taking it off road, yeah, yeah, down, yeah, down yeah. the Mill Creek Ravine yeah. trails. Let's pretend I didn't say that. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, no legal liabilities here. Okay, uh, um, um, yeah, but, go on. Yeah, and uh, so we look at that, and um, then we had to apply a couple of models that we, um, uh, like sustainability models that we learned. Um, so then we thought, oh, this is gonna be a trendy topic, so like let's uh, do a survey. Um, so we ended up getting like over two hundred and twenty responses, which was pretty good. We did not expect to get that many. No, that's um, crazy for us, especially yeah. like a student survey. Oh, because like student engagement is always like one of the toughest yeah, things. Yeah, like four answers yeah. and you're yeah. like, oh, cool. Well, yeah, this is cool. We've posted this like 50 times and got four responses. But yeah, you guys got rate. like hundreds. So yeah. that's awesome. Yeah. And it was cool because it was a wide range. We also got people from um, the community as well, which was pretty great um, from all different age demographics, although the majority was like student, like university age. Um so it was great to see all those responses, and we were like, okay, so what do we do with this now? Um, so then we turned into um, a pretty good paper, I think. Um, looked at the different, uh, main, mainly the three different parts were economic, environmental, and social um, portions, which is what we call a three-pillar pil- model of sustainability in business. Um, or some people also know that as a triple bottom line. Triple um, bottom line. Yeah. That sounds like a Sunday. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, completely yeah. just derailed you. Um, okay, so the triple bottom line, because yeah, something that when I was reading your paper was um, really interesting was actually yeah the sustainability of e-scooters and are they actually a good alternative? Uh, so from what we looked at, uh, the real challenge that these like e-scooters try to tackle, uh, so they say, is uh, micro transportation, um, and especially like congested areas or in a city. Um, and since they are electric, they produce like little to no noise. Um, and noise pollution is also another aspect that a lot of people don't think about, especially in downtown. Mm-hmm. Oh, I think uh, about it. I used to live two blocks away from here, right on Jasper Avenue. Oh, and yeah, uh, yeah I mean, you're right next to the the Edmonton General Hospital. Ambulances constantly going, sirens downtown, right across the street from uh, all the nightclubs where. It's just screaming it at three in the morning, and people. You know, one of the one of the things that was actually a downfall of living downtown was like somebody came home to one of their apartments in my building, drunk one night, decided to like cook a pizza in the oven and set off the fire alarms like every second weekend in the summer. Yeah. So it sounds like you got like no sleep. Yeah. yeah. Noise pollution, yeah. awful. <laughs> awesome. Uh, so yeah, so like uh, things uh, we looked at uh, the different aspects like that. Um, so they do tackle um, those issues, and also they do create um, pretty like lively feeling da- in like downtown or like White Ave area, um, where there's a bunch of stores and just you know where people hang out, mm-hmm. um, which is pretty great. So they do um, have a pretty good positive impact, but at the time the companies were losing a lot of money, um, just due to them being like super new, uh, working out a lot of kinks. Um, pretty common for like other tech companies that are pretty new. Yeah. Um, to lose like Uber. But also, but like Airbnb. other tech companies don't have people throwing their equipment in the river. Yeah. Exactly. Like, yeah. like that's a that's a huge yeah. challenge. I feel I I felt pretty darn bad for a company like that when they're like investing all this money in thousands and thousands of scooters to make people's lives better, and then they just get treated like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and even like this past summer, um, because this study was done in like 2019. 
Um, like that's when we first started it. Um, so things have changed quite a bit. Um, from the like extra research that I have done um, since the paper was published. Um, but even this past summer, like the QR codes would be burned off, right? So you can't even like scan it to actually even yeah. use the device, right? So you have to wait till somebody comes and repairs it. Um, so there, there was, there's been kinks, but overall they have done pretty well. Um, but also the battery technology at the time was not very good because uh, like e-scooters were pretty like, again, like a new technology. Um, so they were, they've been like working at the kinks and the batteries actually didn't last long enough for them to make a profit on them. Yeah. So also another contribution to why they weren't really making a profit. Um, so the batteries and everything do last longer now. Um, so what we have seen is that they actually have been becoming more sustainable. Um, so okay. I, I wouldn't mind like redoing the study and like with um, kind of new, new data on it and especially like from like an environmental standpoint. Uh, but again, like the legal issues now are probably like the main thing that we would have to like look at and like the ethical issues uh, yeah. because like they're getting tossed into the river or people getting injured. Um, so even some cities have like I've looked at like news articles where um, cities have been um, uh, like banning them like, yeah. completely. But then other other cities like uh, I know St. Albert are looking to like introduce them. Right. So you have some cities looking to introduce them, some cities banning them. So. Yeah, yeah, that's that's super interesting. I noticed like when I was using one of the 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 e-scooter apps that you can rate. You know, you have to take a picture of your scooter at the end of your ride, or you don't have to, but they ask you to, and uh, you can actually rate other people's park jobs. And then I see some from like L.A. where the entire e-scooter has been spray painted. Oh and, wow! And like yeah. just totally vandalized, and you're and it's like off at a bush somewhere and you're just like oh this is a bad one <laughs> <laughs> right so i think like the company's doing um uh like controls like that i guess that you you could say um definitely maybe like helps kind of mitigate any of those like help the damages that they were seeing right so hopefully yeah. we'll see that in the future but. i want to kind of pull back for a second because you talked about the three p pillars of sustainability with these and i guess i'm just really curious on what did you look at specifically for the sustainability of e-scooters and kind of where were they failing? And then what were the other two pillars? Can you go a little bit more into kind of the meat of like, what did you actually research? Sure. Uh, so we did a like, uh, mainly we did like a literature review. Okay. Um, that was the main aspect of the paper. Um, and then there hasn't been at the time, like a lot of information published specifically on e-scooters. So that was another challenge that we had to overcome. So it was really hard to kind of dive deep into um, what research has been done out there. Um, so a lot of it was a combination of articles that we found about the sharing economy, which is still kind of a newer idea, like overall. Yeah. Can you um, explain what that is for us? Yeah. So a sharing economy is essentially um, a peer-to-peer -peer use of like resources to help... Um, efficient efficiently like use a um like an item a, a resource and get the most benefit of it um okay. so that's kind of the concept also like that uber is based off of um is that at the like let's say we have a scooter or like your car in the driveway yeah it's going to be parked for eight hours yeah um, while you're at work right so why can't we use that car for another eight hours while you're at work like shuttling people around right so that's where like the idea i guess like in the future like hopefully automation could help kind of solve that yeah because um, they have like they have um in some cities, like bicycle share, um, even here, like a car service, like what is it, Pogo? Yeah, where you kind of rent a car and yeah. then park it somewhere. Yeah. Is that uh, Communauto? There's also like ten the green ones. in our yeah. parking. Yeah, yeah. Right Communauto. Yeah. Okay, so those are all yeah. kind of part of 
the sharing economy. Yeah, exactly. Um, and hopefully get yeah get the most use out of uh, whatever that like resources. And um, you know, right before Calgary adopted Lime scooters, Lime actually had bicycles mm-hmm. uh, in Calgary, and then they started bringing in. I think they were actually electric bicycles as well. Oh, cool! Uh, Which yeah, is I, awesome. I've never seen those, but yeah. I think they scrapped them pretty quickly and went to scooters. I think scooters are probably a lot easier to maintain. Yeah, and I think like the infrastructure here, um, compared to like cities like New York or Toronto, like the bike infrastructure also is like still growing, um, mm-hmm. like a little bit behind compared to other cities. Um, so hopefully, like also then that uh, will promote maybe like e-scooter or e-bikes in the future too. Um, okay, you can see that happening. So I guess we've talked a little bit about the sustainability of the e-scooters, um, and you did mention that you have done some follow-up research on that, and that the batteries are getting better. Longer life. Um, can you talk a little bit about the recharge aspect and how that affects the sustainability of the model? Like people driving around to pick them up. Like, does that offset the sustainability of a non-gasoline powered mode of transport? Yeah. Uh, that. Um, so one way the companies that I know are mitigating that are they do buy carbon offsets um, to help kind of like limit uh, whatever the, like their emissions um, kind of use is. But Another problem, too, um, was that, like, let's say you bring them back to a facility being uh, recharged. Uh, where is that energy coming from on the grid? Yeah. Right? So if our entire grid is powered by uh, fossil fuels versus, like, solar panels, like, okay, sure. Uh, we might be using, elect- like, uh, electric vehicles at the end of the day, but it's still being powered by another fossil fuel. Yeah. Right? So, and delivered by a vehicle yes. that is probably fossil fuel driven. Exactly. Right? Um, so it might be good in some aspects but then there's trade-offs in others so okay. to have like an, a completely sustainable system uh we would need to like take a step back and like look at okay how is our energy grid because we that's another aspect uh that could be interesting to like also look into uh so if you did a, a total environmental life cycle analysis on it um again um that would be like definitely one of the aspects that we'd want to check out okay yeah. do you have like as a person who's driven by finding kind of sustainable and creative solutions um, do you have any other suggestions on how the e-scooter business can be improved from either an economic standpoint or a sustainability standpoint? Uh, so one, so when you look at like the three pillar model or triple bottom line, like mainly you check out like the economic, environmental, and the social um, points. But one of the newer kind of um, aspects that we also look at are like ethics um, and the legal aspects. Um, they kind of go hand in hand. So I think that's also where we need to take. Um, kind of like steps into making sure that going forward that there aren't like injuries being evolved and there's ways to mitigate that um because people do take them out when they're like intoxicated um, oh yeah right? 100 and, yeah, million yeah. even yeah, like, more i would say than on oh, than a normal, normal. Yeah. yeah right so that's just asking for a lot of injuries to happen yeah um which also then like nobody wants there's also been like a lot of reports of um car accidents and people getting hit by cars um so i think that also then comes back to having cities that are designed for um like things like this uh because we could have the bike lanes and infrastructure in place and it would make it a safer environment um because at the end of the day like they do we did see like positive social aspects and people mm-hmm. do enjoy them um and they do make our cities seem a little bit more like fun in the summertime right yeah because in the winter it could be a little bit of a drag right oh 100 so, percent. everyone's bit, miserable little tiny <laughs> snowmobiles there we go oh, there we go that's the next idea yeah. electric snowmobiles going around the city <laughs> okay right 
Uh, next step in micro transportation. Yeah, yeah, macro transportation. Yeah. Yes. You know, one of the one of the things that I noticed uh, last summer was they started to introduce these like no scooter zones on the apps yeah. themselves. Like White Ave, they decided to make like a five kilometer an hour or whatever it was. It was like the, mm-hmm. a really slow zone, so people just don't but even they also go there. Lock when like you go to the zones, like so, yes. like the wheels would just lock up. Um, so you could either get injured, like if you fall off them and you're just not paying attention. Mm-hmm. Um, but also then it mitigates them from being like. And they are, like, kind of heavy. So, like, if you had to drag that way out of the zone um, and throw it into the river, like, that's a a lot of extra work that you have to do. Um, So putting in, like, kind of controls like that hopefully will help some of those issues. Um, But that would, I would say, I would be, like, say is the major thing. And then also, like, buying those carbon offsets for the environmental. Um, Because anything electric, um, we do want it to hopefully succeed. Um, So hopefully creating, like, an entire sustainable, like, life cycle um, yeah, would, would be ideal. Kind of nose to tail. I'm electric. also not an environmental scientist. Just oh, good. <laughs> no, it's interesting. Yeah. You did this research, and like I think it's fair to say that you would yeah. have some ideas. Um, so what are your plans for this research now? I know your initial expansion plans were kind of kiboshed by COVID nineteen, but before you're finished your undergrad, are yeah. you planning to pursue this any longer? Uh, so we did look at uh, expanding it into other cities. Um, and some of the feedback I got uh, from the conference that I presented at, because um, there was PhD students across from all of Canada as well, um, which was a great opportunity to participate as an undergrad student. Um, and we're not really a research university compared to others. Um, I mean, don't say that on our research. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but if you want to give us more funding, please. Like, yes. Yeah. There we go. We're aiming to You know, yeah. that's part of this podcast yeah. is yeah. is the knowledge mobilization and trying to show people that you know there is really important yeah. research being done at this institution. Oh yeah, and I would not have the opportunities I uh, have had without that, which I'm pretty grateful for. Um, so if we had to expand that research, though, um, it would be great to kind of uh, look at um, other cities and relaunch a survey. Um, but then do further data analysis. Okay. Because um, the data analysis that we did, uh, we did like some brief analysis on it, but some very like further kind of like statistical analysis would be pretty great. Um, and then maybe even work with some um, like environmental science student um, and then look at it from more of like a deeper lens on that perspective. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's yeah. a great um, project with opportunities for kind of interdisciplinary collaboration so yeah that's what i love about sustainability yeah it's like everybody's involved and it's important for everybody so i guess uh, my last question for you is you are in your last semester you're about to graduate congratulations we're gonna graduate together Um, nice let's go (laughs) what is next for you what's the future look like for brady bailey oh that's a good question uh still trying to figure that out uh day by day um but uh, I do plan on hopefully going back to grad school eventually. Um, in business, it's uh, there's kind of like a different route. You can either go back and kind of do your PhD or do something like super applied, like a data analytics, master's in data analytics. Um, but hopefully I can go back and get my MBA after a few years in industry for a little while. Um, but also they do have a master's in like sustainability now, um, like in business, which is really cool. Um, so that's a major that you could also do, um, or like specialization within like MBA programs. Mm -hmm. Um, not really here a whole lot, like here in Alberta, but like in other major cities like New York or, um, over in London as well. Where would you go to do that? Oh, probably London. London? Okay. Yeah. I've been there a couple of times. Beautiful city. Not, not, not not London, Ontario. You can't be talking about London, Ontario. (laughs) (laughs) Across the pond. Yes. Take a little, uh, take a little 
flyover. Mm-hmm. Well, Brady, that is all the questions that we have for you. But before we let you go, we just want to leave it with you. Is there anything that we missed in your research or anything? Any shout-outs you want to give? Uh, just uh, my uh, professor, uh, Dr. Reho- uh, Rohit Jindal, um, for helping guide me along the way. Like It's been definitely a great learning opportunity, and I wouldn't have... Uh, had some of the awards and accomplishments uh, without without that support because yeah I when I first started this I didn't know where to start um, so definitely helps uh, having like those people to guide you along the way. Okay, well, hundred percent. Thank you so much for being here yeah, and thanks, walking Brady. us through your work, Brady. Thank you for letting me uh, showcase it. Pretty cool yeah. to uh, talk about sustainability. Any chance I get. Mackenzie Thomas is in her last year of Bachelor of Science Honors degree from McEwen University with a major in Honors Psychology and a minor in Sociology. Someone who always cheers for the underdog, Mackenzie sees the field of psychology as a way to support and assist vulnerable populations. Her primary research is her honors thesis, which is focused on risk assessment and criminogenic needs of individuals who sexually offend based on their typology. In addition to this, she is an author on several other projects, including a practical paper reviewing risk assessment tools for sexually abusive youth, a literature review of intimate partner sexual violence, a study looking at the explanations given by exhibitionists, and a project looking at how to best supervise and manage the highest risk offenders as they reintegrate into the community. That is a lot of work. Um, So thank you for taking the time to come and be with us here today, Mackenzie. Uh, it sounds like we have a lot to cover, so do you want to start off by telling us about your honors thesis research? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for inviting me to come here. So my honors thesis research is focused on individuals who sexually offend. We've kind of broken it down into five types. So we have five types of people who sexually offend. The first being opportunistic, so just people who see a situation that presents and they take the opportunity The second is pervasively angry, and these are people who are just hostile. They're angry towards anyone and everyone, and it doesn't matter matter the gender. This contrasts with vindictive, who have a specific uh, aggression towards women. Then we have sexual, who are motivated by sexual fantasies, and finally sadistic, which are like they sound motivated by sadistic sexual fantasies. So we have these five types, and there's really meaningful differences between them. Because they motivate for different reasons and because they have different past behaviors, their index offense or the offense that I'm looking at also varies in terms of how aggressive they were, if there was non-sexual violence and things like that. So the idea is that if we have these different people who sexually offend, we can't treat them or risk assess them all the same. So my research was looking at how we can take these types and how we can best risk assess them using validated risk tools so that we can make sure that we're prioritizing the people who need to be treated first, and then the other ones can wait a little bit longer. The second part was criminogenic needs, which are risk factors that contribute to somebody's propensity to commit crime. So we looked at these to identify the main ones that kind of show up for the different types, because these are really valuable targets for interventions. So if we target the specific criminogenic needs or factors that are affecting an individual's um, motivation to sexually offend, then the idea is that we can potentially reduce their reoffending rate. Okay. Mm -hmm. So what is an index offense? Yeah. So an index offense is just the offense that we're looking at. It's just the one that you're studying at the time. 
So they have past offenses and they can have future offenses, but the index, I'm only looking at one sexual assault at a time. Okay. Mm -hmm. So with this research, um, how did you get involved with it? Like how, how do you start looking at this? Right. Yeah. I was just really lucky um, that I applied. So I started volunteering with Dr. Sandy Jung um, about a year before I applied to the honors program. And we were working on a different project, looking at those community notifications that go out for high risk offenders. Yeah. So after that, I just applied to be her honors student and I was fortunate enough to get in with her. I had no idea what I'd be working on. I had no idea what I'd be looking at. And it actually took us about four or five months to kind of shape this into the project that it is. And even if you ask her, it turned out to be something completely different than what we originally had in mind. So it was kind of just a matter of luck and having somebody who really believed in the project. So I was able to begin that. Um, Other than that, it was nothing that I had, you know, thought of prior to. It was just kind of in the moment. It just happened. Yeah, it's weird how how often that seems to be the 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 uh, outcome of like researchers, just like they don't really know exactly what they were going in to do, but you know they found it. Yeah, no, for sure. I think once you get in there, you realize how broad the area is, and there's so much left to be explored. And it really is a matter of um, opportunity and just what's available. I know it's one of those things where. If it happens to be a good time, then that's great. But I know for a lot of students, especially with everything that's happened with COVID-19, it's been really difficult to get those research experiences. So it's really about just the right timing, I would say. Yeah. So when you're looking um, at the five types and you're talking about kind of triaging treatment, Mm -hmm. um, why is it important to triage in this way? And is treatment happening at like a community level, like rehabilitation after maybe time has been served? Like are people being rehabilitated, rehabilitated within the prison system? Like, can you talk a little bit about um, how this process would actually take place now that you've identified the factors? Right. So treatment is something that is a little bit challenging right now. There's definitely a lack of resources available. And like you said, for the most part, you have to be involved in the criminal justice system before anything can take place. So when we're talking about triaging or prioritizing um, offenders, we're talking about making sure that the guys who are the highest risk of reoffending end up getting treatment first and that their treatment is more intensive. So when we're looking at the type, somebody who's sadistic, it very clearly sounds like obviously their offenses are going to be a little bit more brutal and they have a higher likelihood of doing it again. So we're going to want to make sure that they get into a treatment program before somebody who's opportunistic because they're just kind of taking the opportunity to commit an offense. In terms of actual um, rehabilitation that's available in the community, there's very little. Like you mentioned, it is through the prison system. If they are incarcerated, then they can receive treatment through there. But we also have to recognize how few sexual assaults are first reported how few of them go through the criminal justice system and how few end up in convictions. So there's actually a really large gap in who should be getting treatment and who actually receives it. Um, Other than that, there are outreach treatment options as well. But again, those have to be through the criminal justice system. So unless the crime is kind of convicted, there's not much treatment that these offenders receive. Okay. Mm -hmm. There's not as much preventative, I guess, treatment, but that's the way I think mental health is often treated in our society is like, uh Oh, it's super broken. Now we will fix it. Um, so something that I'm curious about is, you know, you're looking at 
their index offense. Yes. How do you analyze the offense to then sort them into these kind of typologies or these categories? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a really big challenge uh, to kind of figure out how we were going to, I guess, assess these people and categorize them. Like you said, I was fortunate enough to kind of just have this data handed to me. So Dr. Sandy Jung did kind of all the grunt work at the beginning. Um, So all of the there was 300 cases that were collected from the Edmonton Police Service of individuals who were investigated for sexual assault. And so all of that information had already been entered by Sandy. She'd already gone through everything. So I just got handed a whole data sheet full of all these numbers. And so it was kind of up to me to pick out variables that are representative of what was originally intended for the typology, because it is kind of laid out about how to categorize individuals. Unfortunately, I obviously didn't have all the variables that they had. And so I had to kind of make an adaption, um, which is a limitation to our study. But I was able to adapt and find different variables that were relevant. So, for example, if we're looking at um, the opportunistic type, there was a, a variable that was, uh, was there a f- a evidence of planning the offense? Mm-hmm. So obviously, if I'm looking for the opportunistic type, then I'd be looking for no. So there's certain variables like that. So essentially, I just made up all these different scales, and then I rated them from high to medium to low. And then I created this flow chart. So I would start at the top and just work my way down. And eventually you just end up at the typology. So it was quite um, a process coming up with it. Now that I have it, it's much easier and it's much quicker. But it was definitely, it took a couple months to wrap my head around it and figure out what we were going to come, yeah, use to come up with those for sure. Yeah. That's that's crazy. So Mm -hmm. I imagine like your work has obviously some really great practical implications um, and in your video presentation for student research day, you say that this, this, this research could save lives and do you, can you expand on that and tell us exactly like some more practical uses for the, your research? Yeah, absolutely. So I kind of use this number one and three. Um, so statistics Canada has found that one in three women are likely to be sexually assaulted in their lifetime. So I know there's a lot of like talking about sexual offenders and especially treatment and rehabilitation. There's a lot of contention around that. There's often, I mean, I've experienced it when I'm talking about my research to the general public, this idea of, well, if they sexually offended, they should just go to prison and we'll be done with them and that's it. But the reality is that our criminal justice system isn't set up like that and we can't just lock people up forever and throw away the key they're going to get out eventually. And so the next best option is, okay, how can we prevent them from creating another victim? And so when I say that my research has the potential to save lives, I mean that when I'm focusing on how to best risk assess and treat these individuals, I'm providing information that can help practitioners in these tasks. And they are big tasks. They're quite challenging. And so in doing that, it can then reduce the chances of one of these people going on to create another victim and to sexually offend again. And so in that sense, I think it is saving lives because even if the victim is still alive at the end of the offense, it's going to have a lifelong impact. For sure. And so I just think it's really important to, yeah, not be afraid to discuss this. It is, like I said, a, quite a controversial topic. Um, the idea of we need to rehabilitate these people so that it doesn't happen again. That's, yeah. Yeah, and I I just want to expand on that a little bit because when I was reading through kind of your research um, and looking at the pre-interview, 
you mentioned, correct me if I'm wrong, that like this isn't kind of a process or a method that is being commonly used. Like there's some real implications for this to maybe change the way that we're looking at, um, is it looking at offenders? Is it looking at typologies? Can you just kind of tell me like the new part? I'm very excited about, you know, this is groundbreaking, I guess. Yeah. Um, so I really appreciate you saying that it, it's definitely new. It's definitely something that hasn't been looked at before. We have these typologies, like the one that I'm using was created in 1990. So it's quite old. All of these are really old, but the main thing is that they're kind of just based on theories. So they were like, Hey, we think that a person's going to be different this way. So we'll say it's this. So despite having, you know, all this long period of time, this gap of time, there's been a lack of research that's looking at, okay, scientifically, do these types exist? And what does that mean for implications? I feel like typologies sometimes get a bad rep for just being like an ancient archaic type way of looking at things. And so it was kind of like, hey, let's take this, let's make it new and let's see if it actually can affect the way that we treat these individuals. That's intense. So we're (laughs) going to talk a little bit about follow-up a little bit later on, but something that strikes me with this kind of work um, and with you being a young person, um, this is very heavy. This is a heavy side of psychology. If you're looking at case files for all of these different typologies, I imagine you've come across some things that are challenging to say the least. So can you talk about um, what it's like to go through that and how you compartmentalize or kind of cope with that. Right. Yeah. It was definitely a shock when I was reading through them. I didn't expect it. And especially because like I said, it is coming from Edmonton. So it's realizing that, you know, there was 300 of them and realizing that this happened so close to home. Um, Yeah. Reading the relationships between the perpetrator and the victim and, and how everything went down. I had all those details And so actually part of it was combing through and looking for, you know, the level of violence that was there. And so I read all that stuff and it it was a lot for sure. Um, I think we just kind of are like, oh, sexual assault, like it happens. We have this very like black and white picture of what happens, but it's way more than that. And so it was really difficult learning to cope with that. Um, I'm really lucky that I have people around me like Dr. Sandy Jung, like obviously she's been doing this for years and years and So she's been through her fair share of kind of getting used to reading this material and being around this kind of content. Um, I think, though, in terms of coping with it, I actually also work at the Saffron Center, which is a sexual assault center based out of Sherwood Park. And so it's really interesting seeing the dichotomy between, okay, I'm doing all this research on offenders, but then I'm helping the victims. And so I recognize that I am able to help prevent more victims from, you know, ending up by doing this research, by looking at the risk and by looking at the treatment. And so I think that really provides um, a grounding for me in that, okay, like this is going to help people. And I can see the effect that this might have on the victims. I mean, just connecting with them and seeing how impacted they are by sexual violence. It really just drives me to be like, okay, this is hard, but it's so valuable and so important that I just, I have to keep doing it. Well, it sounds like you're very connected with not only the academic aspect, but being involved with the community. And that's a really great way to compliment um, any research is, you know, know the people and, and get to know 
not just a number on a page, not just a name in a case study, but like the people that are actually living it. So, yeah. Um, so can you talk about some of your other work, perhaps about how it fits together with this research? Yeah. So I have a number of different projects kind of happening. A ton. So, I mean, <laughs> good for you because you're also in an honors program. So thank busy you. bee. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so most of my projects have kind of just ended up relating to sexual violence. Like I said, it just seems to keep pulling me back into it. Um, so yeah, like you mentioned before, I've, I've looked at risk assessment tools for youth because that's another really under investigated area. We often think about, you know, the offenders of sexual violence as being these adult males, but mm -hmm. the reality is that it, it also is quite common among children and among adolescents. So I did do that. I looked at that over the summer. Um, I've also looked at things like intimate partner sexual violence and how that's different um, because the relationship between the perpetrator and the victim has an effect on what that offense looks like. Is there more violence? Is there more um, less reporting and delayed reporting and things like that? So kind of being able to compare those different facets of sexual violence because it is a very broad area and there's so much there. Um, another project I've done is uh, the high-risk offenders and how we manage them. So again, that's actually working with the Edmonton Police Service here. And it's looking at 30 really high-risk guys who get out, but unlike what normally happens, they get put under an 810 section, which is a peace bond. So essentially their, their sentence is over. They've served out their prison time. They've potentially done parole, but they still, the police think that they're at a high risk of offending. And so it's a really unique thing where they're able to say, yeah, you served out your sentence, but we think that you are going to do something bad again. And so we're going to keep watching you. You still have these rules. You know, you can't drink alcohol. You can't hang out with certain people. And we're just going to supervise you in the community. And so we're looking at those people and we're looking at what is leading to them reoffending. What are they missing? And especially things like basic needs. Do they have housing? Can they get a job? Those are really big things that affect their ability to, you know, not reoffend, as well as criminogenic needs again. So things like substance use, how does that impact their ability to, yeah, essentially stay out of prison again? So all of my research has kind of been related to risk assessment and how can we, you know, rehabilitate individuals who offend both sexually and violently. And so it's really about, you know, trying to, I guess, better protect the community. Yeah, and I think mm -hmm. a very important question that I forgot to ask early on is, what is a criminogenic need? I think, you know, help me with that. Yeah, so I know, sorry, I just throw these terms out there. No, so that's okay. <laughs> I just, it's usually like one of the first things, like, can you explain the title of your work? So, yeah. Yeah, so criminogenic need is a risk factor that is known to contribute to offending. So generally, we kind of say that there's eight is kind of the accepted number. Um, so things like substance misuse, um, antisocial personality, antisocial cognition, so justifying their offending, things like antisocial behavior, so prior criminal history, um, also fa family and marital stressors, a lack of employment and education. All of these factors are known to significantly impact somebody's likelihood to reoffend. So we want to target those in treatments so that hopefully it reduces their chance of reoffending. Okay. Mm -hmm. And yeah, just before we kind of move on with the other projects that you've looked at, I have two questions. The first question, um, 
is what are some of the explanations given by exhibitionists? Because I'm very curious. Um, but more importantly, I'm kind of interested in how the typologies work that you did for your master's thesis can fit into all of this, uh, if it does. Right. Yeah. So yeah, you touched on the one project I forgot to mention. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So explanations of exhibitionists. So just if for anyone who doesn't know an exhibitionist is essentially like a flasher, somebody who exposes themselves. Um, so when we're looking at the explanations, it was more so we were looking like, okay, do they deny that they did anything wrong? Do they accept that they did anything wrong and things like that? So more specifically, we found that very few people accept that they did it. And very few people also acknowledged that they did it because of an internal character trait. So most of it is um, externalizing. So, you know, while I was in a private residence or, you know, they just happened to be there and I just happened to be naked type things. So it was more so not like, okay, explain to me why you did this. And it was more so just assessing, okay, do they blame anybody or do they blame, yeah, just the situation? Okay. Mm -hmm. um, and then, yeah. With the typologies work for your master's thesis, um, it sounds like this has applications in pretty much every other study you've done. So can you talk about how um, this work interacts with the other projects? Right. Yeah. It's something that I never looked at and haven't really considered. Um, typologies, there's lots of different ones. There is ones that are specifically made for individuals who sexually offend against a child, um, as well as individuals who sexually offend against an adult. But as far as I know, there's actually nothing that's directed towards things like exhibitionism or there's nothing for youth um, or intimate partner. There's there's some, but it's very limited again and also very old. It's very theoretical based. And so I think what you're bringing up is a great point. And it'd be really interesting to see how typology interacts with these different types of offenses, offenders and the relationships between the perpetrator and the victim. And it's just something that just hasn't been investigated yet. Well, I mean, maybe that's an avenue. That's the next one. Yeah. <laughs> next part of your research, for sure. Um, lastly, before we let you go, we just um, wanted to wish you the best of luck um, with your graduate study application. And do you think that this is a topic you might want to stick with for your undergraduate or even doctoral research? Yeah. So... I actually heard back and I was accepted into graduate hey! school. Congratulations. <laughs> That's really exciting. Thank you. Yeah. So I'm not too sure exactly what direction I'll be going in. However, one of the supervisors that I did apply to actually looks at sexual perversion and sexual deviancy and risk assessment as well. So I do anticipate kind of staying in this line of research um, and continuing further, but I don't know what I'll be looking at specifically. It's incredible that you are not even doing your master's yet and you've already laid the groundwork for really important research that, again, has those super significant implications. That's wonderful. So thank you. Well, class is officially out, and that's it for today's episode of Research Recasted. If you're a real teacher's pet, you can visit Research Recasted on your favorite podcasting platform to catch new episodes every two weeks. Also, check us out on Instagram at Research Recasted, where you can leave a like, give us a follow, or send us a message if you have any follow-up questions from today's episode. This has been Research Recasted, a knowledge mobilization podcast brought to you by the Office of Research Services and Faculty of Fine Arts and Communications at McCune University. 
Research Recasted is hosted and produced by Dylan Cave and Brittany Eklund. Music, sound design, and editing are by Dylan Cave, with research, copy editing, and scripting by Brittany Eklund. Our executive producer is Ray Bree.